And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Harm, you knew it wasn't going to last. The last time we did an episode of the VanCast, we did it following a Canucks victory. But we're going to have to continue to save the victory shows with Drancher and I when we do the live room because you appear to be the kiss of death. Another Canuck loss and we're doing another show. Does that hurt? Does it Does it feel good? I was actually joking about it in the press box. I was, um, I was thinking back to the games that I have attended and watched in person, especially starting the road trip on 5. I was like, man, the Canucks' record with me in the building must be awful compared to a lot of the road games that um, that I haven't been at, uh, and and also, for instance, I wasn't uh, at the in the building for the Montreal uh, the seven six win where they came back uh, from the four goal deficit. Uh, I also don't think I was at like I took the Saturday off for the Arizona one that the Canucks won. Um, and then right before that, earlier in the homestand, I was at both games, which which they lost too. So I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a bad luck charm, or, or maybe I need to be at every game so that uh, I mean, it, no, it means, it means we need means we need to do a show after every game or between every game. Yeah, or or it also means like if you're on team playoffs, you're hoping I never get into the building. If if your team Connor Bedard, you're hoping I'm in the building every night. So. Uh, I got to hear from the VIPs what uh, what the solution is. <laughs> yeah, I think most VIPs will want you in the building. Hey, um, you know, a lot to get into around the last Canucks game and what's coming, which is actually a pretty light schedule with the one game on Wednesday and then another game on the weekend. So pretty good time for Rick Dollywall on a Canuck off day to drop the news that the Canucks recently made another offer to Bo Horvat's camp. Like, you know, we had led to believe we were led to believe from Pat Morris that uh, there hadn't been much conversation, but apparently recently there has been an offer made that was shy of the $8 million mark. 
Horvat's camp rejected it. And as Rick tells it, this is as far as the Canucks could go. And that's it. And now they're fully open as far as potential trade talks to get the best offer for Bo Horvat and move on. So there's a lot of layers to this in terms of what the best offer or what a reasonable return could look like. Is this just negotiating and posturing and there's still a best offer yet to come, which there generally is? Does it make the timeline a little more urgent because everybody's looking at March as a timeline, but does this stoke the fires for potential trade now? Is this really happening? Is there an out? Is there a way? You know, what do we expect to happen? Like there's a lot of layers to all of this. Um, you know, we talked about comparables, Rupe hints that did apparently have an impact uh, in what the number looks like for Bo. The numbers Bo is putting up clearly has them as a top six center, if not a top center. Now we understand that Bo Horvat is never going to be a play driver, but the production is there. And ultimately that's all that matters right now. And he is producing at a one C level. And for those who view him as a glorified 3C, that's fantasy. Like he is a 1C or a 2C on this team. So what do you make of the report and what's next? Yeah, I mean, for starters, there are a couple takeaways. One, which I, I don't think it was too surprising to hear something like this, given the lack of traction in, in talks. I mean, even when the club had uh, gone off to its poor start and Patrick Alvin had spoken to the media, he even said himself um, that he um, hadn't hadn't really spoken to Pat Morris in a while. Uh, when um, when the Canucks were in Toronto, I, I believe it was also Rick or it was either Rick or Elliot Friedman that reported that the Canucks didn't really meet with uh, with Horvat's camp there either for a potential in person sort of conversation. So I think right off the bat, we do know that it's going to be, especially now that the Canucks made their expensive bet on Miller, it's not going to be easy to sort of get the sort of deal done, especially considering how well Horvath's played. But the second thing I will mention is I still think there's this, this story. There's so much time that there could still be another twister turn in the story. Like I'm not looking at it as yet as this one's completely over there's no chance of Horvat re-signing I just think that it's too early there's too much time and when you think about how many twists and turns there were in the JT Miller conversation in the months like how long did that last and there were so many points where everyone sort of was led to believe that extension wouldn't get done i mean even even around the time of the draft not only were both sides speaking in that way in terms of alvin and uh miller's camp but also la friedman was sort of reporting that hey I, I, trade's probably likely because it doesn't seem like an extension is going to be possible and yet at the end of the day it that's that's sort of what that's exactly what happened was it was the jt miller extension so i think it's hard to kind of look at it sort of take everything at face value because you have to keep in mind every information like most of the time when information comes out and is reported it's usually strategic it's usually for a reason when people speak whether it's in public or or private to you know what to the insiders it's usually for a reason to apply pressure i mean to sort of look at it from again the miller lens the miller camp did an interview with me around a week after free agency after it was sort of quiet um, where we didn't know, was he going to get traded? Was he going to extend? And Miller's camp spoke to me and sort of def 
very clearly said Miller is happy to resign in Vancouver and it's a, there's a realistic path to getting that done. And so you have to look at the subtext of even if a situation like that, his camp presumably would have wanted um, wanted that narrative out there that, okay, JT wants to resign because that puts pressure on the team, right? So a lot of this could still be negotiate, negotiation, could still be posturing. Um, I still think it's going to be tough to get a Horvat extension done, but I, I'm just not ready yet to bury the hatchet and say Bo Horvat's time is 100% done, that there's no way that, they, that, that the Canucks might still um, last minute step up their offer, especially because when you look at the Miller example, when you even look at Brock Besser, the Canucks did cave in those negotiations um, after it felt like that, you know, there wasn't a line that they were going, going to go past. Yeah, but now there's also a thought out there that maybe Bo's had enough, right? Uh, from the standpoint of just how much this team has been losing for quite some time during his tenure here. Um, you know, there's been so, so many layers in terms of what the Canuck locker room looks like and just whether or not he's upset at the fact that he was second fiddle in all of this. I mean, there's been so many narratives around the team. Do we believe that Bo wants to go, that his he feels his time is done and he could also use a fresh start? That's a really good question. And that's what I don't really have a clear grasp on yet, to be totally honest, where I can sort of look at it from the team's perspective and say, given how much he means to this team and, and, and the elite production that he's had, and the fact that this team might still prioritize short-term competitiveness, and it's incredibly hard to replace top six centers, on top of the fact that Miller hasn't really shown the ability to excel at center this season, that the team is heavily incentivized to keep Bo. So I can speak to sort of look at that logically and say, okay, they might still have some some wiggle room there. In Bo's situation, I don't know because around a year ago when the team was in a state of turmoil, I spoke to someone within the organization, someone high ranking, who said that, look, Bo's a loyal guy despite, and so despite the, the team being in a total state of disarray, he still felt confident that they'd be able to get a deal done with Bo. The problem is, in the year that's elapsed since, in in now the more twelve, and now we've officially passed the twelve month mark of uh, Rutherford and Alvin being here. Nothing's really improved. In fact, you could argue things have gotten worse. And so, from that standpoint, like, I mean, you'd think that there has to be a certain level of frustration that sets in. But no, I don't know where exactly Bo Horvat's heart lies in all this. If I'm being totally honest. Yeah, that's the hard part is that, you know, we've heard a lot of different things and you're right, Bo has been loyal. And if Bo um, stays and they wind up getting an extension, he'll, you know, he'll he'll be happy with it. But you get the sense that if it, like, I would not suggest for a second that he said, I'm done, I'm out, it's over. Yeah. But I think there was a time where he was just willing to do whatever he could and not that he was going to take a huge shave to stay here. Right. There was, there's, whenever a, the notion of a hometown discount comes up, that's a relative term, right? There's always a small range there. It's not like a seven and a half million dollar player is going to take five million to stay in Vancouver. Like that's not going to happen. Right. But there was a number here closer to seven or the low sevens where it felt like the Canucks could have had Bo Horvat, but then they went out and got JT Miller and 
the organization has admitted, has admitted to a few of us, Jim Rutherford to myself and, you know, and others get the same information that they just did not want to risk losing both. And at the time it was the off season and they legitimately believed both were centers. And now you have to wonder, and it will get into what yesterday's practice looked like because JT Miller got some run at center and whether or not these two are connected. But nonetheless, you know, they, they felt a certain way and it certainly believed by many that they could have gotten this done at a number they can't get it done at now. Like it starts with an eight. And there was a report by Frank Saravalli that there was at least one team out there in a report over the weekend that was willing to pay Bo Horvat nine. And you throw in the Rupe Hintz comparable, what would it take at this stage for the Canucks to get Bo Horvat done? And on what planet is it even feasible given what their cap looks like? Yeah, I mean, at minimum, like, I'm I'm assuming the the number would have to start with an eight, given no how question. well he's yeah, given how and well he's eight, played, and the eight million dollar player that you are paying is not even close to living up to it, and has played himself out of the center conversation, or at least he should have at this point. A hundred percent. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is this is where it's it becomes really tricky because Horvat's gotten hot at the exact perfect time the thing to keep in mind is even even if let's say it was feasible from a cap perspective would it be in the team's best interest to pay Horvat north of eight million per year on a long-term extension because for as well as he's played this season and he's been terrific his goal scoring is not going to last at this sort of pace and let's not forget how quickly the narrative has sort of shifted in terms of his value to this team. Like, there's such a roller coaster in terms of the emotion and the recency bias of a player's performance, where Horvat, around the mid midway point of the season when Miller was on this tear, how many people in this market were, were talking about JT should be the real captain of this Canucks team, Horvat? They should move on from, and at that point, the narrative was all about JT is everything. Can't lose JT. Can't lose JT, right? And that was a big part of, like, Bo and JT were getting pitted against each other in this market. That was less than 12 months ago. Now, how quickly has the narrative narrative sort of shifted? You have to be careful. If you're the Canucks, you can't make an emotional decision in, in sort of valuing Horvat, and you can't risk... I think overpaying in this sort of situation and adding potentially another inefficient contract because look, whatever deal deal Horvat signs, it's going to be long term. It's not you're not going to sign him for four or five years. Can't like you've got to. The point I'm trying to make is you can't let the last 25, 30 games color your perception of um, what Horvat is going to be over the next seven years, and you've just got to be careful of how far you're willing to go and and just ensuring that you don't become desperate like the Canucks kind of did with Miller, right? Like, yeah, but look, look at the, look at it from the other side, right? I mean, this is a player who a year ago, 31 goals in 70 games, right? His goal scoring was trending in this direction. He was on a 30 goal pace the previous year in the shortened season with just 56 games. We know he's been able to score. Is he going to be a perennial 40 goal score for the rest of his career? No, but he will be a perennial 30 goal score for the next five years barring injury. And he's always shown that like he's, he's not been Brock Besser that's constantly injured. And we also know that 
even in the, in the short periods of time where his goal scoring is not there, he brings everything else to the lineup. His leadership is real. When we saw him in the playoffs, he was playing his best hockey, right? Like to me, this is a building block player, right? There, and he doesn't spill the puck like JT Miller does on a regular basis. He's always one of the best faceoff men in the league. There's so much more that Bo Horvat brings. Is it 8 million? And people talk about comparables. You don't need to look far. Your comparable is JT Miller. That's it. It stops there. Nothing else matters because it's the same context in the same organization. They made a mistake. Now, is bringing Bo Horvat back on an extended deal another mistake? I don't know. Um, I, I, I just, I feel like his game is going to last longer. Right. I think we can see five more years of 30 goals per. Is that enough? That's what eight million players, eight million dollar players do. I don't hate the idea. I hate the idea of letting him walk. Right. And we're going to wind up with the same discussion on, on Luke Shen, who you talked to last week, who wants to extend and stay here. What does that look like? What does that cost this team? Right. Opportunity cost and real cost. But for me, like I, I look at, and I'm so conflicted because I think rebuild is the way to go, but it's just like, I would want to rebuild around a player like Bo Horvat because of what he represents to this organization more so than I'd ever want to rebuild around a player like JT Miller, but now you're stuck. Now you're stuck. And well, it, that's it, and that's hard, right? Because they, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. And now they're stuck. Well, well, that's the thing. Again, if they didn't have Miller on the book signed forever, then this would be a totally different conversation. And you would sort of be, you'd be, for all the reasons that you met, you mentioned, you'd be speaking about him as the sort of piece that you can keep around and commit to long term, even as you commit to potentially a, a new direction for this team. I just think that in the big picture, if, if you're all, if you're committed to both guys, and you've still got OEL in the books. You've got Pedersen to pay in two years, give, give a raise to. It's just too much money tied up to sort of older veteran core pieces. And, and I don't know how you can improve the supporting cast. Like I'm looking at the math right now in terms of um, this is just this is not I'm not trying to be super precise. This is sort of like um, writing on the napkins type type of math. Looking at cap friendly, Canucks for next season have just shy of seventy million already committed to fifteen players. It's crazy. Um, let's assume the cap goes up to eighty six million, which should be which is a decent bump compared to where it's at right now or where where it's at right now. The Canucks would have in the ballpark of around sixteen million dollars in cap space, with only keep in mind Myers and Pullman signed on the right side next year. Pullman, we don't even know if whether he'd be healthy enough to play. He's obviously missed all of uh, all of this season. Then you look. Yeah, at the players I'm kind of in side. my mind working uh, with the the idea that Tucker Pullman's not going to play hockey again. Possibly, yeah. I mean, that's that's totally possible. And, and uh, look, that, that's not a. I'm not trying to be callous when I say that. I wish him all the health in the world. But after the last two seasons, um, it, it seems like that writing could be on the wall. Totally, definitely feasible. But anyway, in that sort of scenario, let, let's just assume with this hypothetical around $16 million cap figure with a thin right side, you'd be looking at Horvat, Andre Kuzmenko, Ethan Bear, Luke Shen, 
and Nils Hoaglander, who's who's uh, an your sixteen million like is gone right there. It's over. Well, even the six, uh, the sixteen million doesn't even cover all five of those players, uh, possibly, right? Like, let's yeah, say Horvat's a flat and, eight. Yeah, and let's best case Kuzmenko's a four. Yeah, he might even be five, five and a half. Yeah, and then Bears what two, two and a half. Then you've also got to pay Hoaglander. Then, then at that point, you're squeezing out Chen, right? And of course, like there's a possibility where you can sort of say, like, well, let's look at moving shipping out a guy like Brock or or even a Connor Garland. Those two and, both have to happen. Yes, and and those can happen, but you're still peeling talent. Like when you're talking about, I guess the overall overarching issue I, w- I would have is let's say you're able to keep those guys right like you're, you're able to keep all those guys you're able to make it work you've got Bo back as well yay we, we've signed most of the players we wanted back but after that you're still kind of stuck with the same group and I'm still left wondering how are you going to upgrade the blue line with very limited cap space how does this team get anywhere until they upgrade the blue line and okay let's walk even if you walk down the path of looking at Besser and or Garland and assuming that they can sort of get off of those contracts, even then when it comes to the idea of big picture, the team's quality, those guys are still productive. You're still going to have to replace their top line offense. Yes, 100%. You still like it's worth shipping those guys out for the cap space. But when you're talking about how much better the team is going to get overall, you still have to account for the value you're going to lose or the production you're going to lose from those guys. The gains aren't going to be massive. They're going to be incremental, if that kind of makes sense. And I don't know. I I just, this, this, this team is in a situation where, yes, they can afford to re-sign Bo if they really want. But after that, I'm wondering, wondering once you, Factor in their other potential RFAs and UFAs. How is this team going to be substantially better than what it's been this season? And if they can't be substantially better than what they've been this season, then you've got to rethink what the overall direction is. You've got to take a step back. And if you're going to take a step back and commit to that direction, well, then then it makes sense to move Bo for a halt. Well, let's uh, when we come back, let's talk about what that haul might look like. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So let's assume, Harm, that it's over and they've got to move on and there's no reasonable or logical way to get it done. And like I said, as conflicted as I am because they made the wrong decision, uh, and I and if you would have asked me before they signed JT Miller, I would have told you that that, that Bo Horvat was the player to sign. 
Uh, and we all looked, we all thought it was going to happen before they got the Miller deal done. Now it's not. Um, and you're right. I mean, if you're, if you're paying these two guys 8 million and you're going to wind up paying Pedersen 10 million, uh, in two years, that's a lot of money tied up in two forwards. So let's assume that they bite the bullet, swallow the poison pill and say, okay, we've got to move on from both because that's a, the next question is the most important thing because remember they were fully prepared to move JT Miller. And why didn't they? They didn't because they couldn't get what they wanted for him. There were multiple pressure points. Their conversations were had, and ultimately, they didn't get it done. And they didn't get it done because they couldn't get what they wanted for him. And then ultimately, they said, okay, we can't lose them both, and we're going to get, go get JT. So now, what's a reasonable amount? Because everybody in the league knows they're up against it, and they've got to move on. Right. So what's a reasonable return for a player like Bo Horvat? And when should they do it? Because his value doesn't get any better than it is now. Yeah, it's a really good question. I honestly haven't done my deep dive on uh, trade comparables yet. I do think that right off the bat, you probably don't have a ton of comparables because Bo is a pretty unique situation. Like, how many times do you have a center who's top 10 in? Um, goal scoring around the league, who's also an ace uh, face-off guy who's available as a rental on, on the trade market. You're just, you don't have a, a ton of precedent for that. Right off the bat, just sort of you know, thinking about it off the top of my head, I mean, my what would be a reasonable package? I mean, what do, what do you think, Farhan? Like a first, a top prospect, another draft pick? Well, like I keep, I keep hearing that level of fantasy from people around the league that they need to get a first, that they need to get a young center, and they need to get um, a mid-level RD. I, I just don't see them getting all of that. Well, you're not going to be able to check off all three boxes in terms of a, a center prospect, uh, the top four right-handed D prospect, and a first-round pick. No question. And when I say top four, I mean like a two-three, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, a Tyler Myers type RD that maybe you're not paying six million dollars to. Um, but it 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 seems like a complete reach to me that they can get all three. And so what do you settle for? You can still get I, I still think you can get three pieces potentially. They they just may not all be the high high end ones, right? Like if you if you get a, a first like I could see, you know, like a first round pick, um a, a good prospect, not saying a blue chip A plus prospect, but like a quality prospect, and maybe that's your center, maybe that's your defenseman, and then a third piece which um, maybe isn't like, maybe it's a mid round pick or, or maybe it's a, a B or C level, B or C level prospect. A Jackson Nika type. Maybe, maybe not quite that low, but yeah, maybe around that ballpark. Yeah. And so, and that's, that's the question, right? Because when they couldn't get what they wanted with JT, they decided to double down on this core and go get him signed. And then go out and add veteran pieces like Ilya Mikheyev, right? As opposed to taking the step back that they probably should have taken. And, and it just worries me looking at it to think that they're not going, if they don't think that they've got pieces coming, because, okay, look, who's going to trade for Bo Horvat? Probably a top 10 team in the NHL, right? Yeah. People have speculated Colorado. Contender. A contender is going to trade for Bo Horvat, which means you're going to get a bottom. 10 first round pick 
And those players aren't going to land in your roster anytime soon, right? We've we've seen those picks and what they look like when you're contending, right? So, so now your first round pick that is somewhere in the twenties isn't necessarily going to change your world. It looks really good, and it and it probably starts there, but it isn't going to change your world. So the prospect needs to be a, a year away at the most from being in your lineup, especially if now you've got a massive need at center. So. You know, if they can get two of those three pieces, then those two pieces that they get need to be a little bit higher up the food chain somehow. If you if you follow what I'm saying, because yeah. if you get a low end first round pick again, looks great on paper um, because you can still trot it out as a first, uh, and then you get a player that might be a few years away from getting into your lineup and a lower end draft pick or a mid level prospect. It, like, what have you got? Right, what you've got is ultimately opportunity cost because you can say look we can spend that money elsewhere but we know where a lot of it's going to have to get spent immediately so when i look at it i'm just curious if they're going to be able to do the right things and i think fans are going to have to look at it big picture that just by trading bo horvat and saving that money you are you know allowing yourself to rebuild and they almost have to look at it from the signal that it sends Versus the actual return that you've got, right? And you don't want to get fleeced in the deal, but it may be a while before we see the benefits of that deal. And that benefit may not ever equal Bo Horvat. It's totally possible. What I, what I will say is looking at the way the Canucks sort of handled the Miller sort of trade negotiations, it seemed like there was an emphasis that rather than chasing Kind of like what you were alluding to, rather than chasing, you know, draft picks and um, high-end prospects, there was more an emphasis on, well, what young players can we get that can help right away, and that's where, for instance, in with the Rangers, they were they had their kind of they had their eyes really set on uh, Braden Schneider, for example, because it was okay, he's a prospect, but he can also help us right away and kind of grow into. Uh, a grow uh, grow into a core piece, and yeah, that that the idea of that sounds great in theory. Like, why wouldn't you want a prospect who not only has the high end ceiling but is ready to kind of contribute right away? The problem with that is, if you're from the contender's perspective, why would you give up that sort of piece, right? And that's the issue that the Canucks had in 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 the Miller situation was. When you're a contender and you've got these top end guys that you're paying, what every team wants is sort of if you have if you have cheap talent helping your NHL team today, that's really valuable to you right now because that player is going to outperform his contract. And in a cap league, you need a lot of those contracts where a player is providing more value than what they're paid. And that's why a team like the Rangers, for example, wasn't willing to part with uh, a piece like Schneider because they looked at him and went, okay, we have a ton of salary at the top end with the likes of Panarin and Fox and Zabanajad. We have a lot of money tied up even with Truba. We have so many expensive contracts that we like, how can we like, why, why would we give up a Schneider when we need him today because of how cheap he is? So now circling back to the Canucks and, and when it comes to Jim Rutherford, if the Canucks are sort of targeting 
like my worry would be if you're targeting the sort of piece that um that helps helps you today i just hope that they don't end up sacrificing sacrificing um ceiling that i hope like if there's two scenarios where 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 you have a player that is maybe a year away from being able to help your help your team right away versus a player who's maybe two or three or four years four years away and that's prospect a and the other's prospect b i really hope that they don't sacrifice upside and chase the player that they believe can help them sooner rather than later that's that's one of the biggest worries i have is you know you look at for example when the uh, when the uh, sabers made the uh, ryan o'reilly trade and it was a little bit it was different because o'reilly had term left on his contract wasn't a ufa scenario but the sabers clearly took a more patient approach in terms of how they targeted their return they you know picked up first and a second and the prospect that that they targeted tash thompson was a big project like they knew that he was going to take time and for a long while after the blues won the cup thompson looked like he's like he wasn't even close to being an impact nhl player but the sabers obviously stayed patient worked on his development and now many years later thompson's now a high-end first line center and that trade has worked out well for buffalo for both sides where the sabers now have a franchise center so that would be my worry is I, j- I just hope if the Canucks are entertaining Horvat trade conversations and you're going down that path, do not sacrifice upside. Do not sacrifice ceiling in, in ju- just in an, in an attempt to expedite the process of getting NHL help. Real quick before we go to break is um, Luke Shen. You had a chance to talk to him and he wants yep. to stay. He wants to be here. Um, and, you know, and for me, uh, you know on this show how I feel about Luke Shen. And yep. again, you know, in that same Bo Horvat vein, ironically, they're the two most tradable pieces this team has. But if you ask me, contracts aside, if I could pick like three players to keep, those would be two of the three. Um, and, and I know I'm old school in my thinking, but I, I just see the flaws of some of the high end people that we're talking about as well. So, but off of that, what would it take to get Luke Shen re-signed if that's what they chose? Because for me... I don't believe they're getting more than a third or fourth. I've seen, I'm seeing people on social media saying, oh, it's got to start at a first-round pick. I'm like, are you crazy? Who's going to give a first-round pick for Luke Shen? And if it, A, what's the ceiling in terms of what they can get for Luke Shen? And B, if not, what's it going to cost to sign him? Yeah, I mean, my guess at this stage would be looking at, um, l- looking at past trades. I think a third-round pick is sort of, would be like my expectation of like, there's got to be a team that's willing to give up at least uh, a third. What I'd be hoping for is that there are enough bidders to where you're maybe able to get a, a second, but that may be hopeful or, or wishful thinking from that perspective. I know with, with that um, article that Stefan Roger wrote, where he sort of talked about uh, first round pick or, or whatever, and, and that's got to be the price for Shen. Um, look, Stefan puts out great work, but on that point, I sort of disagree because even a couple of the examples that he cited, like for example, Labushkin, um, and how the Leafs gave up a second round pick for him. Well, it's like, not really. The Leafs gave up a second round pick because they wanted to get up, get off of the last couple of years of Nick Ritchie's contract. They were paying to get rid of his salary in the same way that the Canucks paid a second to get rid of Dickinson's contract. They weren't paying a second round pick because... Riley Stillman's worth a second round pick. 
So similar sort of concept there. That's my sort of thought on Chen's potential trade value in terms of the cost of a contract. I have to do more digging on this to be to be honest, but that's one area that I think has been overlooked is people aren't baking in the fact that his potential cost could go up, right? Think about it. Shen is playing the role that Tucker Pullman was brought in and signed for an expensive contract to do, which in essence was, okay, we don't need any offense from you, but what we need is reliable shutdown defense. We don't need anything flashy. Be tough to play against. Play somewhere in the top four. Be a caddy for someone like Quinn Hughes and just be reliable. Be steady. That's it. You don't need to light things up offensively or anything along those lines. That's exactly what Luke Shen has done. He's done it well. I mean, it netted Tucker Pullman $2.5 million per year. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the cost of what it would take to re-sign Shen, but if I'm Shen's I don't think I don't camp, think you're far off. You know, the yeah, big like, thing is, is can you eliminate term? Because Tucker Pullman had to come with four years of term. A little younger at the time when he signed than where Luke Shen course, is right yeah. now. But Shen's I wouldn't be surprised if he years. was... No, but I'd be surprised if he couldn't reasonably expect two years of 2.5. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that's where, like the a lot of people are saying, like I've seen people, the a lot of the people who are in the camp of resigning Shen are saying, oh, like two years, a million per, and I'm like, I don't, no chance, he's yeah. outperformed that. It's a, and look, here's the thing with some of these sort of depth players, we are in an era where they sometimes don't get paid by teams, and you can circle back late in the summer and resign them, but you're not going to be able to get in front of it and sign them for really cheap. Like look at the Tyler Mott example. Um, Mott had to settle for a really cheap contract with the senators, but before the deadline, he was never going to sign that sort of contract with the Canucks. Like he wanted um, a a pretty high number and he wanted a lot of term. So if you're looking to get ahead of it and you're the Canucks and you're, you're approaching Shen, my guess is, yeah, he's earned probably a handsome raise. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any way around that. And then, so that becomes a challenge. So for me, if you're if you're telling me you got to pay him for two years at two point five, or you're going to trade him for a third, I don't know. I, it that's it, a tough one because what are they going to get to improve the right side of their D right now? I mean, even with him, they're still one short, and they they couldn't get one this off season. How are we going to get two? So when I when I look at it, I just I think you've got to move him. I know he's their only movable piece, but for what? Like, what are you getting out of a third round pick or a fourth round pick? You're getting a chip that you can play elsewhere. That's what you're getting. You're not going to get a player that's ever going to help you. Okay, well, fifth round pick turned into Ethan Bear, and Bear's been their second best defenseman since he joined the team. Sure, but we can all pull those examples out, but we can all pull significantly more that don't see the light of day. So sure. maybe they're maybe they're betting on how good their scouting and their drafting team is and all of that stuff. And and I get it. I get it. But for me, given what their needs are on that in that particular part of their team, if you had the choice, like who do you pay more to? Luke Shen or Ethan Bear? Bear's younger, skates a little bit better. Who do you pay more to? It's a fair question. I think the biggest when it comes to the Shen debate, the biggest philosophical difference that I've seen between the people who are in the camp of let's re-sign Shen versus let's trade him is really your assessment of how far this team really is away from being able to realistically contend. I think that's where the difference is because I think I'm, for example, am looking at it from 
I'm not even necessarily worried about Chen. I'm looking at the bigger picture team direction and I'm going, I'm looking at the cap space next summer and all the discussion we've had about um, the limited space that they've had and how there isn't a ton of flexibility to really upgrade the roster in in a huge way. I'm looking at it and I'm going, I'd prefer that you kind of blow this core up and look to and 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 look at a different direction that you take a step back before and that way you then can hopefully take a couple steps forward down the line and actually get on the path of being and you could you could listen you're you're not team. wrong i i'm big on taking two steps back to to take steps forward but you know what does that look like on the back end if there was a couple of guys waiting in the wings ready you don't want to take those opportunities away by keeping both bear and shen Right. And I think this organization is probably going to lean more towards Bear because they acquired him. Uh, and he's younger. But when, you know, when I look at it at the same time, like not having Shen, what does that do to Hughes? We saw what happened when Chris Tanev left the nest. Right. And certainly a player I advocated for not paying and not terming. But there's the other side of it too. Right. And, you know, we, like I said, for, for me, if you knew, what was coming up and you wanted to create opportunity for those guys and you want to get younger. And I don't view Shen as a core piece. I think it's a different philosophical decision. And for me, it just comes down to what you can get. They could get a second round pick, snap it up and take it, snap it up and take it. But if you're not, how much value is truly gained? How good does that chip look? I just think the team's too far away that Chen's 33 and it doesn't really like if you're going to blow it up, it doesn't really matter if he's on the roster for the next couple of seasons, especially because like what other expendable trade chips do the Canucks have beyond Horvat, especially in a world where where Besser and uh, Garland aren't really worth anything. I can't argue with that at all. And that's the thing is the is the two players I covet the most are the only two players that have asset value. You You talk about Besser and Garland, they will have to pay to get rid of those contracts. There will be something in terms of dollars held or sweeteners offered, even though they say they're not going to do that. Well, then they better be prepared to eat some money. Like there's a cost to trading those guys. There will be no cost to trading Bo Horvat and Luke Shen. And, and ultimately that, that's the irony of it. And that's where they're at. And, they, and you're right. Like where they are, they've got to, they, they've got to maximize those assets, but I'm curious to see what maximizing actually looks like. When we take a break, let's come back and talk about what this team's uh, looking to be doing at practice the last um, little bit here. Spencer Martin, who, you know, he's lost the last game, but has actually been playing quite well, regardless of the number of goals he's let in. And uh, Kevin Bieksa fired back at Zidane Chara. That and more when the Van Kess continues. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. 
So, Harm, the Canucks took Monday off, but on Sunday, full skate, and JT Miller was back at center. Uh, an interesting turn of events. We'll, we'll take you through the practice lines. Uh, Miller was centering Brock Besser and Dakota Joshua. Uh, Mikheyev, Dries, and Kuzmenko were on a line. Uh, Hoaglander, Horvat, Garland were on a line. Stadnika, Amon, Lazar on a line. Pedersen was not at practice. He wasn't feeling well. So you'd have to think that he's probably in for dries with Miller or with, uh, Mikheyev and Kuzmenko because they've certainly had enough chemistry this season. Um, yep. but what do you make of the thought of Miller playing center between Dakota Joshua and Brock Besser? My, my first thought is, boy, I hope that line doesn't get toughs, especially with the way Brock has struggled defensively this season as well. Mm-hmm. You can't trust those guys against some of the opposition's sort of um, best players. Like how how can you trust them defensively? So right off the bat, especially when like, it could be one thing if you wanted to experiment going back to um, going back to the Miller at center thing. If he had cleaned up his puck management, if he was feeling really confident about his, about his game, and you're thinking, all right, let, let's give this one more spin. I just don't know what the value there would be or or what or what the thought process there is because he's coming off of a game where his turnover cost the team a game and the game before that where they beat the sharks in overtime he was benched in OT because again he was sort of a turnover machine and this is the thing that I'm struggling with is that he talked about it at the beginning of the year. He talked about it when he signed his contract that he knew it was an area he needed to improve. He was prepared to give up offense in order to improve his defensive play. Does he quite get where the problems arise? Like you have to truly wonder where he believes the breakdowns occur because, you know, when he was asked about it after the game, he's like, yeah, it wasn't good, but that's hockey. That's not the part I'm worried about. And I'm trying to figure out what is the part he's worried about because he was he's back on the wing because clearly he couldn't play defensively as a center. That somewhat stabilized his game. But we like that cross ice pass along the blue line is something we've seen on a regular basis. Like at, at what point does he kind of get that part of it? Well, I wonder if the thing to keep in mind is he tries those plays so often and even a lot of his points on the power play come from him threading the needle. So I wonder if on a philosophical level, he believes that in order to drive offense, he needs to be trying, he needs to be threading the needle as a playmaker and that, and whether he simply accepts that occasionally that there are going to be those kinds of giveaways and that's just the cost of the offense that he brings to the table because otherwise there's not really any other justification or any other reason why he'd continue again trying to thread the needle every single time and the thing with JT is he's kind of a microcosm of the team as a whole this season right where or where he's exciting and when he's going offensively he's He's really confident and he's clicking. He can look unstoppable offensively. He can look lethal in the power play. But man, when he's playing poorly, he he can just cost cost you a game like that. The, the defensive habits aren't anywhere close to good enough. The the maddening inconsistency and, and the volatility of his play. Through it all, the defense, regardless of whether the points are there or not, 
the defense never really being there. Like, doesn't that just sum up the state of the team as a whole? Yeah, it's it, it is all of that. Like, I mean, the inconsistency um, and feast or famineness of JT Miller's game is the Canucks. The other thing is, I think it's time. The thing that I've wondered is, and we finally got a glimpse of it when Miller was benched in OT. But I've been wondering why is JT an exception to being held accountable among the forward group? Because at this point, Connor Garland has been scratched. Andre Kuzmenko has been scratched. Besser was going to be scratched. Pod Coles has been sent down. Hoaglander's been in and, out of, in and out of the lineup. So you think about, okay, who hasn't been disciplined at one point or another within the top nine? It's Bo Horvat, who is top five, top 10 in the league in goals. Elias Pettersson, who's the best player on this team and, and has consistently shown that this season. Ilya Mikheyev, who's been their most responsible defensive winger while also producing offense. And then JT Miller. That's it among the top nine forward group. I'll now, tell you why. It's called 8 million reasons. See, I don't even necessarily think it's that from Bruce. He's got more power than the coach. Here's my th- here's my theory. And first of all, I'm I'm saying when I mentioned that, I'm not saying when it comes to disciplining Miller or whatever, or when he's having an off night that you got to all of a sudden make him a healthy scratch. But he's got to sit for for stretches if if he continues playing like this. But anyway, my my thing is, well, the most interesting thing I took away. Um, at uh, at the UBC practice after the the win over San Jose, when Boudreaux was asked about benching Miller, was Boudreaux, and this and, and this was like by far the most interesting interesting part. Boudreaux was saying, in the eighty odd games that I've been here, JT's by far been our best player, best player, no doubt. So that right there is is the answer. Boudreaux believes. Or at least, or at least views him in that same line where it's like he views him the same levels like Elias Pettersson, where he thinks this player, like this is my go-to guy. This is my he can't star legitimately player. he can't that legitimately he, be looking himself in the mirror this year and saying that. You could say that for the first fifty-seven games. No, I'm and saying even Bruce then it was debatable. You can't. No, no, I know that. Yeah, but I'm saying he can't. All he's trying to do is diffuse controversy. And just say, look, it was one isolated incident where he played like this. That's not a hallmark of his game. And I treated him accordingly, which is bullshit because this season has been all of that. Like You can make the case that over 57 games last year, when Bruce was the Canucks head coach, that JT Miller was the best player. That wasn't always the case because Besser had good, or sorry, not Besser, Horvat and Pedersen still did some really good things, but... Miller's game, his point production was off the charts and it was different. He He's had enough of a sample size this year where he can't look himself in the mirror and say over 27 games that that's his guy. That's nonsense. That's him trying to deflect controversy. Okay, but then knowing how porous Miller is defensively, why did Boudreaux at the start of training camp roll him as his matchup center? Why did Boudreaux pick, instead of going to someone like Elias Pettersson, why did Boudreaux tap JT Miller on the shoulder and the, and go, you're the guy I trust to play against the opposition's best player, despite the fact that Pedersen wants that role, wants that responsibility? Because last year, JT Miller produced. And while he had some defensive flaws, uh, it wasn't as bad as we're seeing now. Certainly not as bad as what we saw in the, uh, in the bubble. Um, and you could come out of last year and legitimately say he's a center. And he produces at a level where he can handle a good-on-good matchup, 
right? I, I think what you saw from JT Miller last year, where he was going into, you know, like trying to get into a contract season and 99 point pace, man, right? Like that, that's a whole different discussion than what we're seeing now. But in a shutdown role against the opposition's best players, I mean, let's be honest, like even despite the 99 points, it wasn't as bad as it was this season, but we still saw the defensive flaws. And the, and the point I'm just trying to make, the only point I'm trying to make is I, I straight up just think Bruce really, really likes Miller. And I think it's only like really recently that Bruce is maybe sort of cluing into, okay, like maybe the the defensive giveaways and, and the lack of back checks, like maybe now it's finally creeping into his mind that, okay, there's a, that, that cost is perhaps outweighing his production. Well, you're not wrong, but I also see Bruce as a really old school coach and he looks at the physical traits that JT Miller brings totally and, thinks, and thinks he can be that guy without truly looking at the data and saying, it's as bad as it looks. Do, do you know what I mean? And uh, I, I just think that that mentality of Bruce that says, oh, these guys get along, which is why we're going to put them together on the same line. Like, I think, you, you know, you look at JT and you think he should have everything that it takes. And then you watch the play and, and look at the look at the charts and say, eh, maybe we got some issues. So why is he rolling him back in at center? And is it curious that right around now, you know, we just got this report today, which means the offer to Bo would have come in recent days. Do you think at all, and certainly we don't believe that management and coaching is aligned in this mark, in this city with this franchise, but could one have anything to do with the other that we're about to lose Bo and we better figure it out with JT in the middle? I, I, given the lack of alignment, I don't think so. I mean, maybe there's, uh, unless there's something that's gone on behind the scenes that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you have a theory on it? I, I don't like, I mean, just looking at it, I don't think that's the case just because of what I said, prefacing the question that yeah. there isn't that much alignment. So I, you know, I think if he was told you need to do this and he really believes it's the wrong thing, he'll tell management to stick it where the sun, sun don't shine. But so see, I'm not buying that, but there is some irony to the timing of all of this, right? That all of a sudden he goes back at center coming off, you know, some poor defensive performances. And it really has been a poor defensive season. But, you know, you saw him get benched in overtime. They've given up a lot of goals in the previous two games uh, that they won. And then, of course, the loss most recently, which included a, a big gaffe by him at the blue line. Um, so it just seems weird to me that of all the times to put JT Miller back at center, this is that time. So we'll see if it if it's what we see in the lineup on Wednesday, because again, Monday was an off day. Let's see what it looks like at practice on Tuesday. Um, but um, like I said, I find it interesting. A couple numbers I want to throw at you as, as we switch this over here. The Canucks have won 12 games this season. In 11 of those 12 games, they've scored four or more goals in their wins. This team needs to score to win. The only time it didn't happen was the 3-2 overtime win against Arizona where they wound up with three goals. Every other win of the 12 this team has had, they've scored four or more. In those 12 wins, eight times they've given up at least three goals. This team has to score to win. So as we look at Spencer Martin, who I thought played really well in a 3 nothing loss, given the amount of chances that Minnesota had in that game, you know, and he's had some games where it hasn't necessarily looked as good, right? The 7-6 loss to Montreal, sorry, the 7-6 win to Montreal, where he got the hook after four goals, two of which I thought were really soft, but you think despite a lot of goals allowed, his play has been pretty good? Considering the circumstances, absolutely. I mean, the guy's got, what, 20 career NHL games under his belt? And you're throwing him into the fire 
behind one of the NHL's worst defensive teams. It's like all I expect. The the only bar is a certain baseline level of competence. I mean, think about Thatcher Demko, right? I think this this year, notwithstanding, he's established himself as one of the top goaltenders in the NHL. When Demko first took was sort of asked to sort of play as an everyday starter. It was in the 2019-20 season around January, February, just prior to the uh, 2020 uh, COVID shutdown where Markstrom was hurt. And if you remember at that point, Demko really, really struggled in that role. He, He allowed a lot of soft goals. And that was at that point where the Canucks were kind of teetering on, you know, they'd just been so hot and so hot through... Um, the back half of December and uh, and through the early parts of January, and they were firmly in the playoffs playoff spot. And and since Demko had taken the mantle, they were really starting to slide, and they were like just at risk of of being overtaken in the playoff race. To think that if a player of Demko's pedigree and upside, and a guy who eventually went on to become one of the best goaltenders in the NHL, if he struggled in that first first sort of being thrown into the fire you're now you're now being asked to be the number 1 then imagine what uh what you're asking out of Spencer Martin in that sort of role and even when you go back to that San Jose game there were 100% there were a couple of of soft ones but i think people are also forgetting how many grade a chances he had to save off the rush and i talked to uh Kevin Woodley who had access to some of the clear sight analytics data the Canucks gave up, I think, just straight up five in that uh, in that game. The expected goal total was was almost right on the dot five, so he played right around expectation. Now it looks worse because he allows the soft ones, but at the end of the day, if you're saving the five star scoring chances that you you know one or two of them should have probably gone in, and you're saving all those, and those don't result in goals but you're allowing a low percentage squeaker, like at the end of the day, it balances out and it ends up more or less being the same thing. And um, I'm not trying, the overall point I'm, I'm trying to make isn't that, oh, Spencer Martin's been so good. It's more that the Canucks have thrown him into the fire and it's not fair to look at Martin and say, like a lot of people were looking at that San Jose game and going, oh, Martin didn't play well enough. It's not fair to look at him, point the finger at him and say, he needs to be a lot better the team needs to defend a lot better if it wants to have any sort of chance of winning. And I think that's where when you looked at that streak where the Canucks won eight of 11, it really didn't, I don't think it it was, it wasn't convincing enough in terms of for, for me, they had to have shown tighter defensive form. I'm not saying that they needed to all of a sudden barely allow shots and chances, but at least show some stability, at least show some structure. And I don't think we saw that during that hot streak. And and that's part of the reason why I wasn't convinced after the hot run that they had. Yeah. They're just, that's just not who they are. And ultimately for this team to win, generally they either need great goaltending or they need to outscore their issues. This year it's been more of the latter. Last year it was more of the former. Right. And I think the, the conversation around Martin, we've, we've talked about how good he's been when really statistically he's been fine. He hasn't been exceptional. It's just that Thatcher Demko hasn't been good enough. So you've yeah. compared him. Now there's no hiding. Because he's going to get all the he's going to get all the starts, and you can't just pick and choose and select the starts. And certainly, they got less selective 
in November when Demko wasn't good. They just alternated them in most cases. Yep. They weren't overly worried about, oh, protect him and put him behind this guy or that guy. You know, now he's playing also those games where he might have otherwise not got the right bounce or just been hidden a little bit. That just isn't going to happen anymore. So you're going to get a bit more exposure and you're going to get some games of average play. And that's just the way it is. And I don't think you can expect any more, right? Ultimately, he's been yep. solid. Now, as we get this longer sample size while Demko completes his six weeks on the shelf, we'll see. And then we'll see what Demko looks like when he comes back. But Spencer Martin hasn't been the Canucks problem. Even when he's been average, he hasn't been the Canucks problem. Um, because like you say, this team is permissive and that's just who they are. And that's not going to change. Um, at least not this season. I, I just, I don't see a, a path to that unless they make a coaching change and are able to implement a whole new system and structure or bring in somebody of note on the back end, like just to get a different level of buy-in. But right now, this group has shown us that's just not who they are. Um, and you know, and it's not just the, the right side of the D that's the problem. Um, before we go, just change some gear, just change gears and talk a little bit about what turned into a huge controversy late last week. And that was Zidane Chara's comments. And I know we're late on this, but it's our first show since then. Zidane Chara's comments about the 2011 Canucks and the idea that the Canucks, bef- uh, at some point in that series, I forget it was, I think it was after game two, um, showed that they were going to, how they were going to lift the cup when they won it and how they were going to parade the cup. And, you know, they were basically practicing that, which for me is, nonsense um and not because i'm a homer just as a journalist before my i get to my take kevin bxo went on hockey night on saturday and said no way like it just didn't happen and remember the the flag episode of the 2010 olympics where Haley wickenheiser accused team usa of doing something to the canadian flag i forget what it was I was nine Didn't years old, like literally nine, I know. so i don't remember I, at all <laughs> i don't know who was stepping on the flag and then she said something about what well, we want you to sign it fantasy like it didn't happen right like it didn't happen but it somehow became this urban myth that canadians rallied around and it was foolishness and in boston it didn't take much it like it doesn't take much there right because the the passion of that fan base is a little different and it doesn't take much um but kevin bx just flat out said absolutely didn't happen on any level this is an insult to our leadership group led by daniel and henrik sedin um what was your take when you heard it my initial take was Boston and that team as a whole just struck me as a group that wanted bulletin board material. Oh, you yeah. Know, like if yeah, they yeah. could craft like, and this is pretty common with high end athletes and, and teams is if you can find any reason to, to, to get angry, to create an us versus them mentality, to really inspire hate um, in, in this, in this feeling of they disrespected us, blah, blah, blah. I mean that that would that's my sort of um like my guess on on what probably happened is that you know they they form that as a, as a narrative to try and fire them up for the rest of the series, and that may be, but I I'm curious if it was even a narrative then, and I say that because first of all it didn't happen, okay now is there a chance that somebody told the Bruins back then that it did happen, um yeah I guess that's possible. Uh, and, and you're right, like athletes manufacture motivation. And as a media member who often is used in that regard, 
you know, I typically roll my eyes and mock it the second I see it because I see it often, but that doesn't mean the athlete's not going to use it, right? Like I remember being outside the Seahawks locker room after that huge comeback in the NFC title game against Green Bay, um, you know, which they had no business winning, but Russell Wilson pulled a couple of Houdini acts in the fourth quarter and the Packers, you know, let that slip away and Seattle wins the game. Doug Baldwin comes in and with the media waiting to go into the locker room area, just starts spouting about how they were called a pedestrian receiving core. And somehow it was the media that did that. Guess who called them a pedestrian receiving core? A Hall of Fame receiver named Chris Carter. But somehow the media had done this and disrespected them and he wanted to make a point after they won the game. And and we've seen this so many times where someone claims to have seen something, read something, and, you know, whatever. Like, if, if that works for you, it works for you. I'm certainly not going to take the bait as a media member to say, you know, we did or didn't do that. Here's what I will say. Um, in that series, there was the biting episode, remember, right? When yeah. um, you, you had Alex Burrows, and then later on, Max Lapierre kind of mocked the thought of, oh, you want to bite my finger? And he kind of twisted his glove and his hand back, and this was during game two to the Bruins players. You had the Aaron Rome hit. When that game ended, when game seven ended, I was on the ice with the victorious Boston Bruins at Rogers Arena celebrating, interviewing Boston players. You were celebrating? I'm kidding. No, the Boston Bruins players. No, just the way you said it. Yeah. I was on the ice while those players were celebrating, and I was interviewing many of them, you know, uh, from, you know, from Sean Thornton to Chara himself to, to many other Bruins. And many of those Bruins talked about those other moments, the biting. You know, the disrespect, the the um, the Aaron Rome hit as reasons for their motivation. There is not a hope on God's green earth that that story would have held for 11 years. It's just not possible in that moment, if that actually happened and if that actually fueled them, which is why I don't even believe they were lied to at the time and told that it did happen. There is like, you don't think they would have said that in that moment when they were talking about Aaron Rome, when they were talking about the biting, when they were talking about all those things that the people that hated the 2011 Canucks led by Daniel and Henrik Sedin, the people that hated the 2011 Canucks talked about how hateable of a team it was. And certainly the Bruins felt that they hated them. How does that story not come up in that moment? It's just not possible in today's day and age that that story would have held for 11 years. You don't think somebody would have said it? Really? Honestly? But I bet you half of Boston believes it, but it's just not possible. More than half with the way way Boston is. Yeah, I like, you know, it's a different place and there is no way that that holds. It just doesn't. It's not possible. There's too many people have been interviewed for too many documentaries in that time. And like I said, I was on the ice in the immediate emotion of it when Milan Lucic and they were all passing the cup around, the thought that, hey, they wanted to practice how to hand the cup around. Why don't you watch us? We're just showing you how to do it right now. Come on. That would have been out there. Would yeah, have that's a really absolutely good been out there. So, yeah, that's the whole, uh, that was the first thing that came to my mind that was the ultimate eye roll. Forget how classy the Sedins were, never would have let that happen. Um, and you know, and Manny Malhotra and, and others, but 11 years, that's going to hold. Come on, come on. Sorry, Boston fantasy. Um, and with that, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, now I'm going away. 
uh, for a, a much deserved, I'll say to myself, vacation. I'm heading off to, uh, it doesn't matter where I'm going, but I'm getting out of town for about 10 days, leaving next Saturday. So um, next week, we're going to do a best of uh, episode for um, for what was the, the, 2020, the 2022 calendar year, which is basically all of Bruce Boudreaux's time with the Vancouver Canucks. And just the storylines, the comings, the goings, the offseason, where we're at now. Uh, it has been an eventful year. An eventful year from a team that was miles out of it to a team that somehow got back into it for like a day to a team that had all this expectation for what they were doing in the offseason and what it was going to look like. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun to kind of get into that in, in our year-end episode. Uh, and um, uh, and then when uh, when I get back, we're going to have a live uh, session as well. We're also going to get a live room in with Drancer on the 29th. So we got lots going on. But next week's show, I'm looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, especially because a lot of... Um you know, I'm sure 2022 calendar year hasn't been great for the Canucks, but there are all there are also storylines like I'm I'm really excited to talk about Patterson's like 2022 the, the calendar year right because it, it it encapsulates the second half of uh, last uh, last season 2022 is really the year where Patterson's broken out as a true superstar so um, a lot of uh, a lot of positive things to talk about a lot of uncertainty. I'm uh, I'm excited to kind of look back and kind of connect it with where the team's at today and where and where they could go tomorrow. Uh, meanwhile, if you're looking for other podcast options, Red Wings head coach Derek Lalonde joins Sean Gentili and co-host Max Boltman on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday. John Shannon joins the Athletic Hockey Show Roundtable with Pizzo, Russo, and Granger on Wednesday. As for us, perfect time to give out some Christmas gifts here. You can get a new subscription to the Athletic for just two dollars. Per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast you can follow us on your favorite podcast platform please leave a rating and a review you can also subscribe to the athletics nhl's youtube channel at youtube.com slash the athletic hockey show and like i said we'll be back next week with our year-end edition and uh, more shows and live rooms before we ring out 2022 and welcome in 2023 a lot of fun as always harm we'll talk to you soon